Your host, Sean, none other than my very own dad, sits down with inspirational individuals who share key learnings from their own experiences on becoming great. Sean sits down and unpacks their formula for success and in turn highlights how we can all learn from others' experiences, unlocking our own scope to grow and become our best version. I'm confident that you will all enjoy it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Guys, we're really lucky to have the highly sought after and well-renowned wellness and high-performance coach and specialist in Nam Bourbon. Uh, Work with some amazing individuals across the world, amazing athletes, executives, teams, both business and in sport. Real simple way of breaking down what wellness and high performance looks like. Some really great takeaways. I've got no doubt that you'll enjoy the podcast today. Thanks again for tuning in. Based on my experience with you, Nam, and obviously looking over some of the work you do, it seems that the magic of the work you do is how you simplify the complicated science between brain and body to achieve, I guess, performance and wellness. And the thing I like the most, and the thing we'll probably focus on today, is to be your best self. Mm. So I really want to sort of focus on that. And I've certainly had friends and our experience as an organisation, the work you do, friends who are executives have talked about the fact the work and the support you've given them has just been invaluable. So thanks for joining us, mate. Really looking forward to having a chat today. Thank you, Sean. It's always a, a pleasure to be in, in this space with people like yourself. And I think you missed out Stella there. I'm working with you guys. It's been <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to slot in Stella, okay? So in amongst yeah. that elite yeah. group of individuals and companies. So uh, let's lock that in. Yeah, that's So that's good. So Mate, I'm super inquisitive and certainly interested around how I get the best out of myself and then help others to get the best out of themselves. So I'm going to open with a big one and uh, we'll hook straight into it. So in the context of wellness and high performance, how have you helped people like Mick, like Steph, like the Roosters, like the Tigers live well and doing so help them perform at their best? Good question. Big question. So we've got to move on. First of all, it was more around performance that Mm. I was drawn into these teams and individuals' ways of operating rather than wellness. So that was the first thing. I just sort of flipped that around a bit. It became wellness too, but performance was the first part. And in particular, let's start with Mick. I started with Mick in 2007. I got introduced to him by his coach, who at the time was had been with him for. since he was 14, since Mick was 14. Amazing man. One of the best coaches, I believe, surf coaches in the world. And Phil McNamara, his name is, he brought me in because he believed that there was just this little element that needed to be filled in terms of Mick's capacity to regulate his stress response when it came to pressure and dealing with stress when he competed and so on. He'd been through already huge adversity, lost a brother, ripped his hamstring off the bone uh, in a surfing injury, had amazing rehab done with with a Czech lady called Jan Carton, amazing trainer. And then he said, you know what, I think this could be really good. The, the breath side of how I teach to athletes and teams is a very powerful way of getting people to understand more about themselves and especially when it comes to stress and managing stress. So we started off with that with Mick and it became a, sort of a lead in then to, to work with him more extensively in, in training and really developing practices around dealing with pressure, et cetera, when it gets really intense. But the breath side was the key. Same with Steph, so I was Steph with breathing. Same with the roosters, same with the tigers. It was all starting with the breath. And I, I think that one of the most important things around that is that it's something that we can all control and it has a huge effect on the way in which our body operates and whether that be stress, whether that be finding calmness, whether that be regulating ourselves to sleep better, the breath is one of the best and most simplistic tools that you can educate people with to have a greater sense of control in a world, especially in the athlete's world, where there's a lot of things that are out of your control. So with Mick, it was wonderful because he's a water competitive guy, loves the water and and doing the activities gave him with this 
breath training that me and my partner sort of put together and came up with the concepts, variety in his training. It gave him something different that he could tap into that he could really be challenged by yet find very quick rewards from the way he applied himself to it, those being calmer under pressure. And I don't know if many people have seen Mick on the beach where he rubs his hands together and he's breathing in a certain way. It's all to get himself into the right state. So as the pressure unfolds, he's got greater bandwidth in which he can operate from. His body is calmer, which then, we'll probably discuss this later, translates to having a calmer mind. So same with Steph, with the roosters and the tigers, I got brought in for breathing initially to really help them do the same thing, discover that their breathing can help regulate their body through various means that then help regulate the way that they handle pressure. The tigers in particular, the year before I came in, had a bit of a meltdown in their one of the finals leading into the, the grand final and they, they realised that at the time they had some great people working with them mentally with mindfulness, a lady called Emma Murray. She's an amazing human in that space, but they did lack that one aspect of regulating their their body when their heart rate went through the roof. That then allowed them, if they could do that, to access those mental skills better. Because when, as you know, Sean, you train pretty hard. When your heart rate's through the roof, it's tricky to think well. Mm-hmm. But with good breathing practices, you can start to really open up that capacity by quickly dropping heart rate when you have the opportunity to and then with that happening you can access the mental side better so with these people that you mentioned it was about helping them discover that the power of their breath could open up calmness could open up a sense of control within themselves could open up the feelings of being I guess well oxygenated when things get challenged and removing the difficulty when heart rate goes through the roof and your carbon dioxide is very high, you can, with good breathing, you can take the edge off that very quickly and therefore you'll tend to lead into challenges a bit more rather than feeling overly threatened and that can be a big game changer. It sounds like an awesome tool to have in your portfolio and if we sort of assume that that's going to be one answer to the the next question I'll ask you, Nam, you know, at an individual level, what do you see as the the fundamental sort of pillars of living well? And obviously assuming that if you're living well, that then transcends into assisting you perform or be at your best. Yeah, really important to have certain pillars in place. And and like we've discussed through Stella and, and other people that we know, I have these pillars that I always sort of tend to to educate people around because they are the foundations to a very healthy body and a healthy mind or healthy brain. And in particular, breathing is where I usually start at because while it's one of the first things that changes when we get stressed and our health starts to decline. So if we can be aware of how to breathe well, straight away we've got a strong pillar in the way in which your heart beats, the way in which your nervous system fluctuates from stress to calm. And a huge amount of, obviously, the ability to use oxygen is a critical piece. People may not be aware that sometimes they're not able to use oxygen well because of the way they're breathing. And by the way, it doesn't mean that you have to breathe more to make that happen. It usually means you have to breathe slightly less, which we can talk about later, which is interesting. Other health pillars are things like quality sleep. I mean, it's obvious, but why? You know, what is it that we're aiming for in terms of time? How do we wind down to get that to happen? Because you can't just suddenly go to sleep. You've got to go through a bit of a process to get your system, your state into the place where you can fall asleep effectively and have good quality sleep. Daylight, you know, getting good quality daylight before 10 a.m. Stella, we've spoken about get 10 before 10, 10 minutes of daylight before 10 a.m. because of the angle of the sun and the spectrum of the UV light coming into your eyes is critical that it's the right spectrum, the right colour to instigate and activate some certain hormones that allow your brain to come alive and stop sleeping, literally. So that's an important piece. And then things like exercise and movement, nutrition, hydration, 
Connection is a big one, making sure that people feel the sense of connection with their peers, with their community. So there's some simple things right there that if we can address those effectively, what a difference life can feel like when we apply ourselves to, to getting the optimal amount and the optimal way of experiencing those pillars. Yeah, and I think the thing I like about the work you've done with Stella and the way you just describe it, Nam, is I think sometimes you think, and it is, I guess, in a way, very complicated and overwhelming about how do I achieve better wellness and happiness and all the rest of it. But when you sort of break it down into those fundamental sort of blocks, right, it's actually not that complicated. Like you say, 10 minutes of sunlight before 10 a.m. is pretty achievable, I think, for everyone, right? And obviously the effect that that has on your circadian rhythm and the ability, uh, the knock-on effect for sleep and the hormone response to sort of wake you up or bring you alive for the day, it's pretty achievable, right? Forms of exercise, you talk about hydration early in the morning, those sorts of things. It's actually pretty simple stuff that you can build into your life to create habits around to create a meaningful change. So I think the younger version of me, and I think for a lot of people, it just seems overwhelming. Where do I start? But I think the way you break it down into those fundamental pillars, it's actually pretty easy to get your head around. Yeah, and, and you can piggyback so many of them together. You know, you can do your, your hydration, your oxygenation, breathing well. You can get your daylight. You can do some movement and exercise. You can get some connection within 10 minutes of probably getting out the front door and going for a walk, grab a mate, off you go. You've, you're hitting and ticking a lot of those off very quickly in a format that then sets you up well for the day, which is, I believe, one of the most important things for everyone is having a good routine in the morning, you know, really following through with a routine that, like our brains love, consistency and certainty. You can have variety to it, so there's some uncertainty in how you operate, but a lot of it is is consistent so that you get those little hits that over time build and become a very strong platform to how you're going to feel, which is a critical piece of how you're going to think and therefore how you're going to behave. And you have control over these things. you just got to be self-aware of what works for you and how you're going to implement them in your day. Absolutely. We talked earlier and obviously we discussed it yesterday, that notion of maybe first you have a mood and then if that lingers or becomes too consistent it can become a temperament and then that can then transcend into a way of life if you let that play out and continue i guess the flip side is you talk about that ability to build optimism so how does one build optimism what's your sort of thoughts or take on that and what is optimism you know the height of optimism would be you and i getting chased up a tree by a lion and going wow look at the view <laughs> you know, that, that's really really finally stole that one off him but i think that's a great way to describe it the opposite is pessimism where we always see the bad in things rather than the good in things so first of all we recognize well what kind of way of thinking do we have around certain situations and circumstances to be self-aware that where do we sit and the optimistic view is really seeing that things will work out for the better. Things are going to be good. Now, how do you build it? Well, there's several ways you can build it. Ideally, you get into a state of feeling good about yourself regularly. Again, why? Because that drives usually how you think. So if I feel pretty good because of my daily practices, I'll probably think good and I'll probably see the good in what's unfolding. The other way is to think about reflection at the end of the day and just to nominate one to three things that you believe you've done well or things that have gone well that you're happy with so that you're training your brain to see the good in let's say a day's occurrences that for all of us is challenges but if we can still see the good in a given day we'll start to build that viewpoint it will start to become normal that we're always looking for the good and therefore drive more optimism the other thing is to what I love doing is researching amazing things. You know, I don't know if people know this, but one eyeball has two million functions, which is ridiculous. One eyeball has two million functions in the human eye. So that's amazing. Yeah, what a great thing. And straight away, when you think about perspective of, of how we exist in life, there's some really good things that are occurring as a constant in the way that we operate. And therefore, again, that's tending to look at things in a good light. So that's building optimism. 
the other way is, is having the ability to be mindful about your own thinking by doing mindfulness practices or breath work or meditation so that you have the capacity to minimize the negative bias that is inherently within us that says we should be looking out for negative things due to survival. And therefore, if, if we don't have that ability to self-regulate how we think and where our thoughts go, we may get pulled down into looking at the negative, which is pessimism again. So good practices of mindfulness throughout your life is important so that probably more than anything to, to silence or lessen the inner critic, you know, your own voice that says that you're not good enough or whatever it may be saying to you when things get a bit challenging, where that drives this pessimistic view again. So we've got to be aware of key factors here that it is something you need to work on because you're against biology, which says 80% of our thinking arguably is looking towards the negative for survival. The brain doesn't isn't there to make you happy, it's there to help you survive. So you've got to work on these aspects to get the best out of yourself and have that optimistic view, which is a great thing, isn't it, really? If you think about it, if you're around someone who's really optimistic, you'll kind of feel the energy and want to go with maybe that way of thinking. Pessimism, you kind of back away a bit. (laughs) And then there's realism in the middle, right? So you've got to have that too. But yeah, it's a great thing, optimism, powerful. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think if someone said to you, oh, just be more optimistic, you're like, how do I do that? You know, how, how do I mm-hmm. achieve that? But I agree. I think for me, one exercise I do and sort of talk about that process of reflection is uh, gratefulness. So every night before I go to bed, I quote three things for the day I'm grateful for and then one thing I'm looking forward to. And I think over time it's just rewired and reprogrammed my brain Probably before that practice, I was scanning my day or my life for things I didn't yet have, the car, the house, the job, whatever it was. But now I find myself, surprise myself, uh, it almost feels like it's a default to see the solution or be grateful for whatever is taking place as opposed to default to the negative, maybe victim mindset that I might have had once upon a time. So. I think that's a, it's yeah, a huge that's... and really simple thing. And like you say, maybe the primitive brain is clearly designed to save us from threats and all the rest of it. We don't have the same threats as we had probably when the saber-toothed tigers and those sorts of things. So it's a different landscape, but the brain's still wired that way. And, and I don't Correct. know, maybe you'd have a better feel for the ratio of positive to negative thoughts you need to have to remain optimistic or remain happy. Can you comment on that? Yeah. There's a lot of evidence suggesting sort of five to seven positive to one negative, which is alarming, right? That's ridiculous. However, it's again, it comes back to the survival aspect of our brains that that's what it's driven to do so that we, we do, did survive in ancient day. Gratitude is one of the most powerful things to employ. The thing with gratitude is to be aware that ideally there is a bit of a narrative behind what you're grateful for, meaning... You know, I could say to someone, thanks for yesterday's coffee and leave it at that. If I could say thanks for yesterday's coffee and the conversations we had, it really gave me greater insight to what you do. I never realized. It's amazing. And I just go into a bit of a narrative around what I'm grateful for. That's what now neuroscience is saying really develops areas of the brain to increase the capacity to be more aware of being optimistic and growing parts of the brain that then help reduce the self-critic. So there's just that little additive I always like to share with people to see if you can add a bit of narrative to what you're grateful for rather than just a statement. So then what happens is it brings out a bit of the feeling of the gratitude that is what we want to enrich in our bodies and in our brain to then really get those neurons firing and wiring together that build those capacities. Fantastic. Fantastic. I want you to expand on this next statement. The state of your body impacts the state of your mind. Yes. We have, I'll go straight to it, we have what's called a vagus nerve and we have what's called vagal tone. So a vagus nerve is what's known as the wandering nerve that allows us to feel, as an example, emotions in our body. It allows us to have our gut communicate with our brain effectively And that nerve over time develops capacities to 
help us be in different states. So if I get incredibly calm doing some breath work or some meditation, and I just feel really, really centered, the vagus nerve is helping me experience that throughout my body and my mind, and I can feel that as a sense of calmness. Very quickly though, if a threat happens, my vagus nerve will get fired to then stimulate the fight-flight response to help me get into action to get out of the challenge that may be occurring. And that's vital for survival. The other side is that if I am exposed to too much stress, too much of that fight-flight response, I minimize my capacity to be and experience calmness. And I may then fall into the last area of the vagus nerve's capacity, which is then being basically in a withdrawal state where I'm, I'm submitting, I'm freezing. And that can happen in modern day where you just want to close the door and hide and not be around people and, and really to kind of withdraw away from things and feel very, very overwhelmed with your emotion that you may be going and experiencing all the feelings you're having and the thoughts you're having in your head through this vagus nerve. So ideally, we encourage people to really work on calmness and energy, you know, doing exercise where you feel energy and alive. That's part of the fight flight, but it's a milder state of it. It's called sympathetic. So that then builds what we call vagal tone or fitness. So therefore, the state of our body, the nerve that's running through the body, really helps us feel how we're operating and therefore sends messages, very strong ones up to the brain of what we then potentially need to think and how we're going to think. So if I'm in a really huge state of calmness, really centered and something stressful comes into my world, I'll be able to cope so much better than if I was in a stressed state unknowingly, potentially, and my body was a little bit agitated and irritated and I was a little bit fired up. My response is going to be way different from both how I speak, how I move, everything. So in effect, what I'm suggesting here is that the state of your body has probably a bigger impact on the state of your mind than your state of your mind has on the way it thinks. So arguably, the interesting thing is that we can really help ourselves think better from a mental perspective if we get our body in a better state of feel through deliberate practices like breath work, meditation, mindfulness, exercise, engaging with people, connection with people, where we feel this sense of belonging, etc. all felt usually within the body. When you feel an emotion, it's usually in the body. So that's where the state of your body has a huge impact on the state of your mind. And you do have control over it. You do have the ability to regulate it. It's just then up to us to follow through with those simple practices. And it doesn't mean you have to do much, like a breathing practice could be five by five by five, five seconds to breathe in, five seconds to breathe out five times through your nose. You will calm your nervous system down. That vagal nerve will become more calm through that simple less than a minute process that then opens up the capacity for you to think of it better. And just quickly, uh, another one of your quotes that I love is exercise burns bad chemistry, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Can you just hit on that really quickly around what's happening yeah. in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. So let's say we have a situation where it's a meeting and we have an emotional response to something that's gone terribly wrong. The chemistry will be expressed very quickly to warn our bodies that this is a threat. And therefore, the vagus nerve gets fired up, along with a lot of chemistry being pumped into the system. Now, if I was then to go back to my desk and get on with work, where does that chemistry go? Well, it ends up being absorbed in tissues. And then should I not do anything, and for a few hours, it'll get stored. And there's a lot of evidence now that things like cortisol, which is a stress hormone, can get stored in fat. And then through, let's say, a couple of days later, I, I suddenly get this feeling of anxiety. I'm like, what's going on? And it could be that now that cortisol is just gently getting leached out of my fat to get used up or burnt up, whatever the fact may be, put out of the blue. So ideally, we burn off chemistry at the end of a given day by doing some exercise, some movement to then stop you know, that night 
you're getting woken up in the middle of the night because now the chemistry is just coming through the body again. It's getting detoxified and it wakes your brain up. Mm. You can literally reset that chemical explosion that may have happened earlier so that it doesn't repeat itself later. And it could be short, could just be running up a staircase a couple of times, you know, 30 seconds just to get that chemical adrenal cortisol response just to back down and burn up what is there in the system that doesn't want to hang around for long. It shouldn't do. Ancient day, you'd sprint out of there or you'd fight and you'd burn it up. But today it's different, right? We end up sitting in our own sludge. Mm -hmm. So we need to move a fair bit. And I always say, like with you guys, you know, have an M&M every hour, like, piece of chocolate well you could but not that it's movement and mindfulness maybe a couple of minutes of each and now you're really burning up that chemistry that you may have produced or producing more that may make you feel better and think better plus you're calming your brain and mind down so that you can then access creativity productivity for the next hour it's a powerful thing love it another simple thing that we can easily do obviously with big benefits Obviously, there's a lot of people struggling with stress and anxiety at the moment. So what are your sort of key tips about how one would reduce, you know, I guess the impacts or the experience of stress and anxiety? One of the key things is be aware of, so that self-awareness of when you're going into levels of stress or anxiety and not to cover it up with certain behaviours that are a coping mechanism, we'll call them. Try to be a bit more open to the fact that I, let's say I have anxiety and I start to feel it, that I don't go quickly to my phone and try and just kind of cover up the feelings I'm having. That's probably the worst thing that we could do. Sorry to jump. Is that like labelling it, sort of being that self-awareness to be conscious and, and label that yeah. emotion rather than you sort could, of go over yes. the top of it? Or it, yeah. Is that what you're sort of alluding to or is it slightly different? Well, uh, yeah, what I'm saying, before you get to label, don't try and cover it up. Don't try and use other coping skills to try and diminish the feeling. In other words, just be open. Go, oh, I'm feeling anxious. You could then, as a great skill, is, is name it to tame it. We know in psychology that when we name what we're feeling from an emotional perspective, part of the brain, the right part of the prefrontal cortex fires up and helps calm down the amygdala which is firing off to say that you're anxious for whatever reason. And that naming to taming is arguably that's one of the best things that we can do. Now, if you then add with that maybe some controlled breathing, five seconds in, maybe seven or eight seconds out, you'll get that vagal nerve to really calm down that is expressing the anxiety. Some movement on top of that is now burning up the chemistry that the anxiety may be producing, like adrenaline or cortisol, so that then that's being taken care of too. A little bit of exposure to what you're always triggered by for your anxiety is a really powerful thing too, where you're going into things that do create a bit of anxiety for you, just to gently trigger yourself and expose yourself to those challenges. So not to always shy away from them, to actually gently expose yourself to challenges, the fears of what you're fearing, whatever that is, and then within that time and space that you're doing that, use your tools to maintain composure. As an example, let's say I get really challenged by speaking in front of a big group. Okay, simply get some mates around and speak in front of them as if they're listening to you giving a talk, but there's only two or three of them, and you just gently build from there so that you build this familiarity for your body to experience a little bit of anxiety or fear or whatever or stress so that then it gets familiar, knows what to accommodate and utilize to keep you in a composed state and you just gently grow from that. But shying away from your challenges, you know, I don't believe is a good thing. I think people should expose themselves to the challenges within reason, obviously, but it's, it's mild versions. That's what I'm saying as well, mild versions of it. And then using those tools to then regulate your response. Remembering, we spoke about this yesterday, emotion generally only lasts about 90 seconds. And in the first six seconds, if you can just pause and not respond or react to what you're experiencing, just pause and sit with it, so much of the chemistry is absorbed into your brain, into your tissues, that now the logical part of your brain can come online again and be more reasonable and logical about what you're going through rather than just reacting. And that's a powerful 
thing to understand that within 90 seconds, it's kind of up to us how we respond. Because once that emotion's done, it, it's settled and parts of the brain are settling. We just need to then make better choices rather than getting stuck in it and go, you know, blaming and feeling guilty or shameful for whatever. Have a question that you always go to, such as, where to from here? Okay, so where to from here? So you're provoking your own conscious mind and logical mind to think of a solution with a simple question along with those other little tools that we've spoken about. I love that answer, and I'm going to just dive into one particular aspect of that, and that's probably the anxiety piece and the strategy you talked about uh, being exposure therapy. Now, I don't know if I'm wrong in saying this, but I'm assuming, obviously, at the more profound example of this is when, obviously, Mick got attacked by a great white shark, and then he went on this journey, right? I understand he did a shark documentary where he went swimming with the sharks on the rest. I'm assuming that was exposure therapy at its greatest, where he had this massive stress response and anxiety around something that could have taken his life to the point where he's now doing a shark documentary and swimming with maybe hundreds of sharks in recovery, and now he's maybe popped out the other side. Was that exposure therapy in practice? You could call that, yeah, yeah. And, and absolutely. And, and also telling the world that it's okay to be around these things, you know, and for a bit there, he didn't go back in the water after that experience, but then he did, and that was part of what he wanted to do, obviously, because surfing and adventure and the feelings he gets from doing that is, is a huge part of his value system and, and who he actually is. So he didn't ever want to stop, but he had to just give it time. That's the other thing with some of these things is that was extreme, give it a bit of time, but then gently. And then he went back to Jeffries with the notion that it was unfinished business. We didn't finish the final. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's humongous courage, but so there's greater meaning. Make meaning of your challenge so that you can then use the suffering. The meaning is what helps you get through the suffering. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you develop into incredible, courageous person in your own right for what you have to go through. But making meaning of, of that was powerful for him, right? That was a big driver. But yeah, exposure therapy is really an important piece especially for young kids of today as well. Mm. When you get challenged and threatened by things, it's all about just trying to manage how they respond to their emotions. Because as a kid, sorry, just went off track there, but, but as a, a younger person, we don't have a full development of the prefrontal cortex until we're sort of 23, 24, which is what helps us logically and reasonably think through challenges. So when emotions erupt, they don't have the hardware and the software to deal with that very effectively. So we've just got to be gentle with how we approach it, but we've got to approach a bit of exposure, I believe. I think it's an important piece. I want to throw into the mix now limiting beliefs. What are they, Nam, and how do they get in the road of us and what we may want to do? Yeah, so let's just go belief. A belief is a generalization of information that you have at this present moment based on your past experiences, whether that's positive or negative. The ones that are limiting are ones that are holding you back from applying your skills, your strengths, your identity, experience that you want to have, say, as you work through a given day, a given week, given month, given year to your future or your vision. So these limiting beliefs that we all have are really what are holding probably the best of us back. I guess you could say that. And we need to be aware of them. That's the first thing around limiting beliefs is to recognize that you have one or a couple, whatever they are. And then with that, it's then deciding, okay, well, if I have this limiting belief, what would I want instead? <laughs> so that's the big step. Why are we, do we have them? Well, well our brain loves certainty mm. and it likes to think things that are going to be certain for us to then feel safe. So we need to embrace the fact that living a great life is usually living on the edge of our comfort zone, which generally means that certain beliefs may need to be changed because if they were built in the past, what we are now could be completely different. I mean, a lot of people have the same beliefs when they were growing up as kids, which can be challenging for an adult <laughs> having that in place. And then... With that, letting go of certainty and then also, you know, being aware of 
what is it that you're after and what beliefs do I need to, in, to change or shift or install to allow myself to break through to that next level? So it's a, an interesting area because we have to have a bit in, of introspection. We have to look within and go, okay, what are my limiting beliefs? Where are they showing up? Recognize that. Recognize that it's okay to change them, to upgrade them. In fact, it's one of the greatest things you could do maybe every quarter is just have a quick look at your own belief system and go, do I need to shift anything? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that can have a huge impact on obviously your goals and attainment of things that you want. How would you recommend doing that? Is that things like journaling or writing down what things are showing up to, to sort of make that a little bit more conscious or apparent and then be mindful of those things when they pop up in the future and try and change your view, that prevailing belief or view to something else? Like what's your sort of tips yeah. there? Yeah, so it would be, it could be through journaling and, and just things that may be getting in the way of your progress as an example and then refining the answer to that, which could be uh, it's the people with me. And then so your belief system may need to change that if you can take your own self-responsibility into how you approach things, regardless of the people around you, you'll probably be able to break through whatever the challenge may be rather than blaming. So you may have a belief system that says, a limiting belief system says that if I don't have the right people, I can't do what I want to do, which is to an extent could be correct. But really, if you get the right resource, and that could be from an emotional perspective of sharing ideas with conviction and enthusiasm to a group, they jump on board as an example. So journaling and writing things in that context is very helpful. Talking to people that you know that ideally are equally in a lifestyle or sort of business style as you in terms of their commitment and discipline and how they want to operate, have that circle of trusted comrades that you can chat to about your own belief system and they can give you views and then you'll start to have these aha moments as you discuss through conversation around maybe a limiting belief and that conversation can be very very powerful you may need to get a coach that can help you with that who knows how to ask the right questions to provoke the answers that it's saying hey there's a blind spot here i don't know if you realize (laughs) that's a great way of doing it and then also just stipulating how you want to be and who you think you need to be to achieve a certain outcome. Mm. So you're looking at your own identity now and installing a belief around, well, how would a person like that operate? And that may be they're very disciplined, whatever it is, and therefore you, you can upgrade, well, I'm not that disciplined, I noticed that. So doing little things to build discipline could be in the morning have a cold shower rather than a hot one. You know, as an example, oh, I don't, that's going to make me feel horrible. It's very good for you, but it doesn't feel good. But with a bit of discipline, you break through that challenge of the belief that I could never have a cold shower. It's too cold. You know, that concept of testing yourself with little simple tasks and ideally making clear decisions in what you're, how you're operating through a given day can build discipline. So there's a couple of examples. Now, fantastic. I want to go on to the notion of connection and what's the upside of connection to help us live and perform well. And my own, quickly, my own personal experience with that connection is once upon a time, if you said connection, I would have said, oh, yeah, whatever, Nam. There was a time, I think, where we were being really successful in business, but I felt quite isolated. I felt like I was all into business that consumed all my time and focus. And I actually, I, I didn't make that much time for friends and family. And even though on one hand I was succeeding, on the other hand, I actually felt quite lonely. Mm-hmm. I think that consciousness then led me to make more of an effort to make time for friends and family. And fast forward today, I've never felt more connected and I feel a lot happier and balanced as a result. But can you talk to us why connection is important from a scientific point of view um, based on your experience? And it is based on my experience. I work with a, a lady called Dr. Ali Walker. She's a, a genius when it comes to connection and, and so on. So just, yeah, it is from my experience and what I've heard from her in particular is that connection is arguably one of the most important needs for us as a species, that we are developed around safety 
in terms of wanting and needing safety by connecting with our caregivers as much as we possibly can. And then as we go grow up through time, the sense of belonging to a group is really, really important for our health, our well-being in particular, because that feeling of safety again and connection to a group says that to the brain anyway, the ancient part of it, that we will have a greater chance of survival. So there's some interesting science out there now saying that the feeling of good connection, and by the way, everyone has a different way of connecting. So we, through Dr. Ali Walker's work, there is connection types. And so sometimes you can feel like you're sitting at home with someone, but you feel lonely because you're just not connecting effectively with that person next to you like what you may have felt within business. Mm. Not feeling good connection can be as detrimental as things like smoking and drinking too much alcohol and eating poor food choices, which is remarkable. But it's true that the effects within the body of not having that sense and feel of connection can be really detrimental to your health. You go into that vagal tone of fight-flight or withdraw, which is arguably a really challenging space where we then can fall into depression. So when we connect, we, I believe, a really good statement that my, me and my partner heard years ago was that you have a witness with what you're doing and experiencing. And there's nothing greater than, let's say you go on holiday by yourself and you see these amazing things, but there's no one to witness that with you. Mm. And you don't feel like you're actually connecting to the experience because there's no one connecting, no one to connect to. So the connection piece is very, very important because of all those different levels of biology. It's a necessity. The fact that it, someone becomes a witness of what you're doing and on the level that you're doing it, where they can connect with you and have a great conversation around the experiences that you're both having within that space, that really livens up the brain because now we have this sense of, I belong with you, this is awesome, and we're on the same page. And that then, again, comes back down to safety. Mm. It's a really important piece. And we look at the oldest living people around the globe, one of the defining factors is that they have great connection within their community. I did a lot of work in the Middle East, and after any of the families went away overseas on holiday, they'd always come back, get their friends around, sit in a big square or circle in a big room, and share stories and there was so much connection because the people that didn't go away wanted to hear and they're leaning into the stories and there's this beautiful growth and connection piece that's taking place through storytelling. Mm. And if we connect back to the most ancient culture in the world, it's the Aboriginal culture, which is based on storytelling and connection of stories. Mm. So why has it lasted so long? Well, there's some evidence there that says that well, a lot of it's down to storytelling and sharing information generation after generation around connecting not just to people but to land and nature. So connection isn't just humans. It's connection is to the land that we live in. And nature in particular is a very powerful place that we need to connect more to, I believe, because it has such a profound impact on our immune system our ability for our brain to calm down due to things like open focus and looking into big open spaces or mm. being focused on something narrow that's beautiful and amazing that gives us that sense of connection to our natural world. Now, the other factors around connection is like social media is not a bad thing. However, you know, do we still get the same sense of connection through that media? Sometimes, yes, little bits of it. But I think we need a bit more of the real face connection, interaction. That. So as a father of four kids, I'm constantly thinking, how can I equip these guys to live their best lives, as we sort of said at the top of the podcast. And for me, it's been an experiential journey to this age to try and figure out and hack how I can live better or live well. So what would you say to parents like myself and others that want to help their children live their best life to ingrain some of these practices or things to give them the best shot to have that great foundation? Yeah. And it's inevitable that there's going to be things and circumstances come their way and some days they'll win, some days they'll lose. But what are your sort of tips in that regard No, Huge question. How long we got? You know, listeners, bear in mind, I don't have kids. So I'm going to just talk from my own experience of being a kid 
Mm. And what I noticed in having great parents, I was very, very fortunate. So I'm coming from that perspective. Mm -hmm. First thing is, I believe, is to help kids understand from an adult to a kid that if the adult, the parent can normalize Mm. their feelings. So not to always put up the shop front to always sort of discuss when they're challenged or discuss where they're happy or where they're sad and not show that they're some superhero that then the, the child then thinks that they have to live into that space, which I see a lot where the really dominant parent wants, wants to, the child to do incredibly well in a sporting activity and they're, and they're displaying these behaviours that are really way too hard for a kid to live up to at that age. Yet that's all they see and are exposed to. So then the child would obviously be well overwhelmed. <laughs> like, I just can't do that. Mm. So we've got to be aware that as a child and a parent, there's there's a whole different way of the child expresses emotions compared to the adult, obviously. But the adult, if they can normalize feelings and emotions, the child then will do the same and go, it's normal for me to feel this and that and get used to the different emotions that they experience as hormones change, et cetera. I don't know if listeners know this, but, you know, from the age of about, well, when puberty hits in a boy, the first few years of puberty hitting, their testosterone can increase by 600%. That's a raging bull on your hands with no prefrontal cortex fully developed yet to regulate their response to their own emotions. Mm -hmm. So it's really a tough time, right? The other thing that I found growing up is that my parents exposed me to lots of different cultures and experiences that were different to mine. Mm. So I got to know things from a worldly view of how people operate and how different things are in different places. Now, that might be a different town or a different community. It doesn't have to be a different country, but different community where there's a slight cultural shift. But to expose them to those types of experiences consistently as they grow up so that they have a broad view of how their territory, country, the world is, rather than always being narrowly focused on what they may see on social media, which is, well, it's an illusion, right? It's the best version of things. Mm -hmm. So expose them to challenging environments where they get to see and feel threats and challenges and poverty and less fortunate so that they get perspective And the greater the perspective they can have when they're growing up, the greater they'll have when they're older because that's where our blueprint sets in place. How we see the world is installed into our blueprint of our belief system between the ages of about 4 and 12. Mm. So we want to see if we can expose them as much as we can to different experiences, different cultures, different levels of how people operate as much as we can because that's how I was brought up and it really put me in good stead when I became an adult. The other thing too is, I believe, is to be very mindful of how much help we give them in terms of giving them money and giving them things that they really want that is outside of normality. We've got to be mindful of that so that they get used to earning their desires of what they want. They get used to, you know, working for pocket money, as an example, or doing things that might be difficult early and helping them through the difficulty, but not doing it yourself for them, getting them to work through difficult times as best as you can with good support because that's Mm -hmm. what builds self-trust, doing difficult Mm -hmm. things. And arguably, one on top of that is to complete things, get them to complete things at young ages because if they complete things, they'll build Mm self-efficacy. And now they have greater self-esteem, which is a prerequisite for this world, a high level of self-esteem. If you want to feel that you have a sense of self-control and et cetera and do well in what you do, self-esteem is very helpful, but it will require doing difficult things and completing things, which is a big ask, you know, like homework. (laughs) I don't want to do it. But if they complete their homework and you then say, I love the way that you complete your homework. I love the way that you play when you play rugby you're encouraging them through the sense of love Mm. to acknowledge these factors and then they feel worthy within themselves because of what you've said rather than just because you've told them they actually get it because they did do those things effectively as an example mate again super simple (laughs) but it all makes sense right as you reel them off 
it resonates with me. And I think, again, really, really easy to do. So, mate, you've been super generous with your time today. I know how busy and sought after you are. So for those that want to find out a little bit more about the magic that you do, how do people find out more about yourself? How do people find you? Yeah, so website is www.narnbaldwin.com. We're obviously on that with explanation around the things, the work that I do. Instagram, I'm on that. Not very often, as, not as much as I should be, but I, I tend to jump in there every so often and just give a whole heap of information out through stories in particular. I don't know if you've seen them, but as concise as I can be in helping people in different ways of living. And that's just my my name, Nam Baldwin. And we've got a, a wellbeing and performance program that Stella's doing right at the moment that we're endeavouring to get out more and more to different businesses, which is on my website again that you can check out. Uh, which is six modules in relation to well-being and performance and bringing those two things together because they're intertwined and they come with worksheets and follow-ups and materials that people can utilise and, and videos to watch to improve habit formation around those two concepts, well-being and performance. So, um, yeah, through those mediums. Fantastic, mate. Well, look, you're having huge impact on people that you're assisting, whether it's organizations, individuals. We're really grateful as an organization for the work that you're doing with us. I think you're allowing people to live better lives and their best lives. And I think that's a huge credit to you and the work that you do. So thanks so much for spending time with us today, sharing some of those simple or your strategies, tools, and awareness aspects. I'm really, really grateful. Keep working uh, your magic, mate, and yes. looking forward to continuing the journey with, with Stella and, and who knows what beyond that. Thanks, Sean. Thanks to you for, A, asking me to be here, B, for inviting me into your business, but also the work that you're doing. I've checked out a lot of the podcasts that you've done. There's some amazing people that you're connecting with that's helping so many people. So thank you for having me, but also thank you straight back to you for what you're doing and putting out there because it's it's honourable and you're really sort of lifting the bar in relation to how you can assist people more than just in your work context. You know, you're, you're doing things like this, which is a lot of effort and time and appreciate you you're doing what you're doing. It's wonderful. Appreciate it, mate. Yeah, I'm just inquisitive personally, but I love sharing those things to other people as well. So... There's lots of benefits for what I'm doing. But yeah, thanks again for joining us, mate. Really grateful and and look forward to the next catch up. Cheers, Sean.